Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, listening to today's episode with Alex Medine. We have a really amazing interview for you. But first, I wanted to just chat with you a little bit. You know, recently, I was thinking about when I first started teaching yoga. That was over 20 years ago. And how different it was, um, you know, how much easier it was uh, in some ways, but also how much more limited it was because we didn't have the internet to connect with people. And, you know, the landscape has drastically changed over the last few years. And um, a few years ago, I was feeling a little bit lost and like I needed to refocus. I don't have a degree in business or advertising or anything like that. And my interest has always been the deeper philosophical teachings of yoga and Eastern philosophy, the practices. Um, And so I was really curious on how to connect more deeply and in a more authentic way with people. And that's when I stumbled across something called B-School. Now, B-School is a six-week interactive video-based training program, and it is perfect for heart-centered creatives like myself and possibly like you who want to build uh, an inspired and profitable business. Um, It's a wonderful program where you'll learn to implement highly effective strategies to increase your reach and impact in a very meaningful way. When I took B-School, it really shifted my focus and helped me to understand how to connect and reach people. And it gave me more confidence in putting myself out there in the world so that I wasn't holding back. It helped me to pivot during uh, the COVID pandemic and create my online membership as well as start this podcast and also uh, create my course that I've taught now four times online to different groups of students. So if you're um, new to the yoga and wellness industry, maybe you just graduated from a teacher training course or you just... um, took a health coaching certificate or a coaching certificate and you're wondering now how do I connect with people? How do I find students? How do I get clients? Or maybe you've been in business for a while. Maybe you have a yoga studio and you're coming out of COVID and needing to figure out a way to um, again connect with people and draw them into your classes. Once again, you're offering something that you really care about and that is really uh, meaningful to you. I cannot uh, express how much I think that B-School will help you. And a wonderful bonus that you're going to get, well, there's a few wonderful bonuses. When you uh, get on my wait list to uh, register to B-School through me, You will also be invited to join eight weeks of a mastermind group that I am putting together and leading that will be guided around the uh, modules within the B-School. It will be uniquely focused towards yoga and health and wellness coaches, but say you're making malas or jewelry, B-School can be super helpful for you as well, and you might be interested also in joining this mastermind. 
You'll also get a ticket to an online retreat that I will host uh, later in the fall and a membership in uh, my private Facebook group as well as a special workshop that is geared specifically to uh, ways that you can optimize your health and maintain your practice while working on building your business because it's not easy. There's many demands and pulls on our attention when we are starting uh, a business. You know, it's like uh, giving birth in a sense. You're creating uh, something new. And and so how can you take care of yourself and stay focused on the things that really matter, which is, you know, your practice and the teachings. But also if you don't focus on your business, if you don't focus on connecting with the people that are your people and giving your message to them, then nothing will grow in your business either. It's just like our practice. To see the growth within our practice and within ourselves, we need to take time to nurture that growth and nurture that practice. And it's the same when you're building a business, whether it's online or in person, you need to focus and take that time to really start to direct some um, intentional energy towards it. So um, I would encourage you to get on my wait list. You can do that by heading on over to my website, harmonyslater.com. And this week I'll be sending out some newsletters, some little love notes with some training videos that will be absolutely enriching for you. Even if you decide not to join B-School, I would encourage you to get on the wait list because you'll receive these training videos that are really valuable and will at least give you some new ideas and maybe some direction in how you want to continue to grow your offerings in the wellness world. So thank you for your time and attention and I don't want to make you wait any longer because this interview with Alex is a really special one that uh, has so many gems and you're just gonna love it. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case. Well, hello. I've been I've been doing my vocal exercises to try and improve the quality of the show. So <laughs> excellent. <laughs> and we are joined today by a very special guest, a good friend of mine, who I met I think back in maybe 2005 in Mysore, India. But and also a mentor to all of us. Yes, yeah, sort of a. A fixture in Mysore, India, for a time, and that's, that's right. Mr. Alexander Medine. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, Harmony. Very nice to meet you. You too, Russell. Thank oh, you for good. reaching out and inviting me to be part of your podcast. It's very, it's, very kind indeed. It's really our pleasure to have you on the show. It's really, it's really kind of you to be on as well, actually. And when I met you, you were sort of a little bit of a vagabond traveling around the world, doing some teaching here and there. And then you ended up living in Mysore, India for a while in a house and introducing the community to all kinds of very... Esoteric. No, I would say teachers and scholars That's from different institutes. Esoteric. Esoteric, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, the hidden knowledge. <laughs> the hidden knowledge. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And yeah. now, yeah, now you're back in your home country, aren't you? Mm, that's right. I moved back to Norway in 2009, and that was a big step, actually, after living outside of Norway for 22 years. 
Amazing. Yeah. Well, I also have a little uh, intro I'd like to read just for the the listeners at home who may may not be aware of um, your history and and what you've done, which is magnificent. Um, R. Alexander Medine. What does the R stand for? Reverend, as my dar- darling used to say. No, <laughs> <laughs> I no, really no, no. believe no. that. <laughs> Absolutely you know. no. It stands mm. for Robin Alexander Medine. Robin. That's the R. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> so, R. Alexander Medine is a native of Oslo, Norway, uh, where he grew up pursuing many different talents. He became Norwegian champion in boxing at 18, but then gave it up for a career as a ballet dancer. He was first introduced to Ashtanga Yoga in 1995, and he was granted a certification to teach Ashtanga Yoga by Patabi Joyce in 2002. In recent years, he has been very active in bringing yoga to the less fortunate in society with a special focus towards therapeutically using yoga to help heroin addicts. And you're to be commended for that. Thank you so much. Wow, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, um, you you died recently, as I understand. I was, really? I was, yes, I was really worried about you. I understand that you actually found out that you died on the news. And I wonder, what happened to you? <laughs> oh, you must refer to the incident in Iceland, uh, <laughs> where I actually, yes, they thought I, there was the... There was an accident where I was free diving in a place called Silfra, which is a beautiful fisher uh, uh, in the middle of Iceland, where two tectonic, the North uh, American and uh, Eurasian tectonic plates meet. And it's a kind of rift there from an earthquake, which is a beautiful place to, to dive. And being a free diver, I was there just kind of playing about, enjoying uh, exploring uh, the area myself. And then after about probably 25, 30 minutes, two scuba divers came along. And then I kind of were in the water for another half an hour playing around with them. And they had tanks, of course. And I went up and down and kind of holding my breath a little longer than I should. And then at the end, I ended up just uh, passing out, having what they call a shallow water blackout. And I basically fell to the bottom uh, and passed out. But luckily they found me. But it kind of took a while before I, <laughs> you can say, got back to life again. So they kind of did the CPR and they called the ambulance and the helicopter came. And it was like it, it became a big story in Iceland on the news. Yeah. So I, I guess that's uh, maybe how, how you heard about it. But uh, I certainly uh, did not die. I... Uh, resurrected from the waters and uh, it was just a little shaken and uh, the yeah i was in iceland to teach a yoga workshop actually and i was supposed to you know go um in the ambulance to the hospital but uh but i couldn't because i had to teach a workshop so that the next day <laughs> kind of came, came on the news so but i had Did left you... uh, out of my free will yeah did you? But did you leave your body? Were you were you clinically dead at no, any point? No, well, no, no, no. I don't think I was clinically dead. I was probably just. I don't really know. I I just remember that I was free diving and I was playing with those two guys, trying to impress them by free diving skills, and 
push the limits a bit and was remembering going up to the surface. And I actually remember taking a gospel there, but then it just got black and I kind of fell to the bottom and lay there for a while. And what they told me is that they told I was kidding and playing with them because I've been doing that earlier and they kind of left me. But when they kind of saw me lying there for a couple of minutes, lifeless at the bottom, they realized they had to do something. So they kind of uh, dragged me up and uh, yeah, kind of tried to get me back to life and called the helicopter and ambulance. and stuff. Like God, that, that sounds so much like you did but did they do they have to get do they have to get the water out of your lungs does it enter no, your no, body no well i remember i was the thing is i had hardly any water that came into my lungs because you know there is this reflex in our vocal cords that sometime you know when we are like with the infants that naturally close when you go into water mm. and i don't know if the same thing happened to me or if i hadn't had it enough time to breathe in properly but I had basically at some point just stopped breathing and fainted. And basically, I had hardly any water. I coughed a little bit uh, of blood when, when I was waking up. But that was probably from the kind of pressure that he had done on my chest, maybe. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know. But uh, that was, um, yeah, a little careless uh, accident that uh, unfortunately was a close call. But... Um, Luckily, it went well. It's just so it's just so balls out to the wall to say, you know, I really should be going. I know I have to go to the hospital now, but I have to go teach. And so I'm going to run. But you all, thank you for your efforts. <laughs> yeah, that was the only hard thing, actually, because the, I had to report to the, to the doctors and I had to write a signature that I was like taking full responsibility myself, you know, but... I felt absolutely fine. I was just a little kind of uh, groggy uh, the first, you know, maybe 10 minutes after I gained conscience. But then after that, I felt, you know, I trust my body and my instinct and I, I felt good. So I thought it would be terrible to let, because it was actually the first day of teaching. And, you know, when you do come to a new place and do a workshop and don't show up, it's a kind of a, yeah bad attitude so I, I kind of did everything <laughs> I could but the, the worst thing is that the, the owner of the uh. the one who had organized the workshop in Iceland she kind of knew about it and she was freaking out and kind of having a bit of a mental breakdown but I kind of ensured right. it and said hey this is fine I can I can do this so I yeah ended up <laughs> it. it actually turned out to be a very nice weekend yeah, Iceland's so beautiful, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Iceland is an amazing place. And I, yeah. It's really a question of, of dharma. Like you have this, this thing that needs to be done. You need to reassure the director of, of the shala and you need to do your duty and nothing stands in the way. It's, <laughs> you know, you have to do it. That's true. That's the, one of the most important things I learned in life, actually, to do when you do your duty, all goes well. When you kind of um, avoid your duties, then you get into trouble. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to to stand up and 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 do your best in every situation. That's what we learn from. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you a, a question because I know that you're a um, you're a Sanskrit scholar and a and a you have a a master's in in Indian religious studies. And I want to ask you um, about choice. 
recently we had Luke Jordan on the show and he talked to us about uh, a scholarly paper that he did on determinism and this conflict between yoga or maybe a supposed conflict between yoga and Sankhya and this idea that we're, we do choose whether or not to, to do dharma, to do our duty or to self-actualize through yoga. But yet Sankhya is, is telling us that we're endlessly determined. All that we do is observe. And I, I wonder if you can speak, speak to that about whether or not your, your death was determined or not. <laughs> Did you have any, <laughs> well, any choice in the matter? <laughs> I mean, it was simply, the, it's a consequence of my own ignorance, carelessness, and kind of... Uh, thinking that everything will be okay. Normally, I kind of end up landing on my feet, but sometimes you end up hurting yourself a little bit with the flips and turns in the process. Mm. Um, but but what you touch upon is, of course, the heart of, you know, the Sankhya and Yoga philosophy, which is a dualistic system, kind of <clears throat> breaking the world down into two main, main principles of the Purusha and Prakriti, where basically, you know, the Purusha is this inner, still, um, purity, undestructible, uh, you know, uh, you know, eternal witness. And Prakriti is everything that is constantly changing and ultimately made up of these three gunas. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's, I find it, you know, fascinating the kind of uh, various discussion that goes on in the kind of neo-vedantic forums and you know is everything destiny or free will uh, and uh, i believe that uh, yes at, in, on a greater picture there there is certainly maybe uh, we are just specks of dust in this greater dance and unfolding of the you know enormous universe but life happens here and now within our very physical nature and that's our very starting point because you know our uh, starting point is that ignorance is real uh, the lot of the modern philosophers who are inspired by the great Mahavakyas from the Upanishad, like, you know, Aham Brahma Asmi, like, I am verily Brahma, or Sarvidam Kalvidam Brahma Asti, like, everything is indeed Brahma, or Tattvam Asti Shveta Ketu, like, you are indeed Brahma. That are the great Mahavakyas from the Upanishad that basically tries to articulate what is our inmost nature. Mm -hmm. But that inmost nature, we do not yet know what what is you know the greatest uh, you know one of india's ever greater greatest philosopher shankaracharya you know he had this famous dictum that you know brahma satyam brahma paraha that brahma is real you know uh, this world is false and this you know soul is nothing but the brahma but our starting point is that we live in a world of dualism uh, and 
the only one who don't experience this dualism is either the madman or the enlightened <laughs> man. And there's mm. plenty of mad people in the world and the enlightened people are very rare and few in between to find. So, you know, naturally there's a lot of confusion in this matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if you ask me, I, I would say, yes, maybe there is only destiny and an unfolding of karma, but without making use of, you could say, my free will, I, I will only be a ghost in a machine, you know, trapped by my own programming and my fancies, my needs. And to a certain extent, that's what we all are. And we are conditioned by our DNA, our genes, our upbringing, culture, education, environment, etc. But, you know, this inner witness that they speak about being the purity of the Purusha, if you like, in yoga, Atman, in Vedanta, uh, basically however we choose to interpret it we can't know that you know that doesn't do anything it just observes it's the eternal witness it's indestructible unchangeable and said to be the source of all consciousness but we do not know what that is and one of the greatest fallacies is that we pretend and we think we know what that is but if we really become poignant about our life is that we live in a dualism because it, we could, you know, you could pause and you can think, wow, what a marvelous thing. And th- th- maybe there is this great purity within me that they men- refer to in the text and you may sometimes feel glimpses of it. But although you may say, and yes, I accept that. And yes, I, I believe this being is within me. And sometimes you may feel closer to it and, um, have fragments of, of experiences, if you like, you know, we, we are still ruled by our inner, you could say, uh, physiological, psychological, mental pattern, if you like. That's what constitutes our being. And, and call it samskara, call it vasanas, whatever you like, but we need to be clear on that. And that is uh, our very starting point. Because I have needs, I have fancies, I have hungers, I have ups and downs, I have my problems, you know, and I interpret life through these various samskaras that I have. Uh, And, you know, some people are living in a dream world rather than really being present with the problems of the world and the problems of making sense of, of our own mind. So my point is like, I believe uh, more, uh, I, I hear what Luke is saying, and I like the idea of, you know, the modern neo-Vedantic people that say, you know, everything is just God, relax, and let life unfold. But there is a personal responsibility for us to kind of come closer to yoga and experience this inner changeless essence of our being according to the, the the scriptures and you know in the, the in in the commentary of, of yoga sutras for instance this this in the beginning uh, they speak about you know uh, the various five states of mind like shipta vikshipta muda ekagrata niroda where you know we are either distracted you know uh, temporarily our mind is just somewhere else so we are simply ignorant or stupefied and then our mind is not receptive to this thing called yoga we need to develop a sense of focus a steadiness of mind need to happen 
from maturity of yoga. And eventually, uh, niroda, element of restraint, is where, where the changes in our physiological, psychological, mental being really happen. And that's why I believe, like, taking ownership to our life, being responsible, doing the best we can in every situation is simply our very starting point to to engage with life. Because according to the Sankhya tradition also, and, you know, the whole of Sankhya Karika is very clear that Prakriti is for our own development, our own um, benefit. And like in the Yoga Sutras as well, when they explain hmm. the the scene, I mean Prakriti, they say, you know, Bhogapavargartam Drishyam, like this this seeing, this various changeless nature within us, sorry, this various pattern within us that you sorry, let me be clear. This our our physical, psychological, mental patterning, which is always changing, that is indeed for our enjoyment to explore what are the things in life that gives us lasting enjoyment. And you can try to eat, you can engage in the senses, you can have a party and you can go into a wild rant of rock and roll, sex and drugs and try to find happiness, but you won't find it. Because how much more do you need to kind of uh, consume and take before you are totally shattered? So the only way to find that inner stillness is through finding harmony uh, within our senses, finding stillness and gradually exploring this other element, deeper element to, to our being. And, and that's why I believe in, like, in order to explore and go beyond this maya, this great illusion of life, we first need to start with the ignorant pattern that fuels our mind. And if you want to build a house, run a business, or you know, become a professional athlete, it's work. It's putting in the right amount of work. And you could say there's the element of um, practice. Uh, and, and without that practice, nothing happened. And nothing, although there is that other element too of vairagya, of, of you could say letting go when they're real grace uh, of yoga start to happen uh, so let me, let me be i'm getting lost in it but, but mm -hmm. i'm just what i wanted my point is like if we don't take responsibility for our action you know uh, we don't have a proper starting point to, to really start engaging with life the very life that we're living then we're just living a dream uh, so in order to like wake up from that dream and and fully like become empowered human beings that could see the very trappings of our nature that is, although temporal, we need to do our best in, in, in every moment and be vigilant and careful to the small things that we do. <laughs> and, and I like what I just, what happened to me in Iceland, it's just an example of, you know, when you're careless and, and, are not careful with this nature that we're given, then we end up harming it and we end up easily confused and, and, and bewildered. Um, but what I, if I were to just like make a point of, of why I believe 
in um, you could say the importance of free will and taking responsibility and and owning the responsibility of our action. You know, this is the very uh, dilemma of of, of the Bhagavad Gita, or you could say Krishna's guidance to Arjuna is all about the the personal empowerment of, you could say, making the right choices. Krishna doesn't need Arjuna, and he never forced Arjuna, but he ends up guiding Arjuna about, you know, this inner indestructible essence of being ultimate, you know, yoga accessible to all. The, uh, we may find it, understand it through uh, action, if you like, karma and love, bhakti. And that is the very foundation to grow into these higher states of awareness that these texts try to point to. But without a maturity and a development within us, this knowledge will only become ignorant. And then, yes, we can pretend to say, yes, it's all unfolding of God's grace and we are just puppet in a greater show. But unless we take personal responsibility, there are nobody home here and now uh, taking part of our our action. If, if I were to end it, uh, <laughs> I mean, if I, if I, because I, there is a very... I, I was very fascinated by this myself in the beginning in my search of yoga and thinking like, wow, you know, there is this indestructible essence, this higher being within us. But but that's not what I feel. I live in a sense of dualism. I have my ups and downs, highs and lows, and my fancies and my cravings and my confusion and delusion. That's what real to me. Although occasionally... I feel these glimpses of stillness, clarity, and precision. And my, uh, I could say, wake-up point happened when I I realized that in order for me to embody this beingness of life, I needed to be more responsible and careful in my actions. That's where how the changes or my, you say, karmic pattern took place. Without that care for action and care for the small details that happen in our life, we end up just destroying ourselves, like I did in Iceland, almost killing myself. Mm. You no, know? you did. You did kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So, so to me, you know, the beauty uh, of of, uh, of of this world, really, and and the Bhagavad Gita, if you like, is that. Yes, you could say we are spiritual beings, you know, trapped in our karmic patterns, which which is true. Uh, And there are alternative ways to get out of that. But um, how I interpret the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I believe that Krishna speaks to the the free will and of Arjuna encouraging him to, to take responsibility. And, you know, by doing our best to fulfilling our duties and responsibility, we we get that opportunity to, to grow. And then we may, over time, gradually explore and experience a little clearly what this indestructible in the being of Atman or Purusha or the self really is. Uh, because how I interpret it to be, it's not what it is. It's a reflection of, of my karmic nature that speaks to you now and communicates and I am kind of imprisoned and ridden by, by those. 
But as long as I speak about an experience and I call something a name and form, there's always another and we are caught in duality. So, you know, the starting point for me is, yes, dualism is real. I believe in oneness, but that is not where I am at the moment. I am ignorant. I have faults. I have flaws. And embracing them, working with them, eventually I can also watch and experience them change. If I don't, I end up just kind of being confused and deluded and are are running havoc according to the pull of my senses, the fancies of my mind. You know, I, I was I was thinking this about something that you said that reminded me of of the of how Sri Patavi Joyce would often say, "All is God," and, and of course, he's a follower of Shankaracharya, and he is a Shaivite. You know, he is putting the three gunas on his forehead as a reminder. And yet, what uh, you were saying makes me think that truly, in your heart, you might be a Vaishnavite. Where putting the two feet of Vishnu on your forehead as a reminder of our dualism is uh, would be you know actually critically important to you. Like yes, we are dualistic. The God mm-hmm. is that, and I am this with my you know little pissant needs, mm-hmm. and it's important to remember that. Yeah, and I think without that starting point, like pretending to be something we are not, is a kind of breeding ground for for further confusion and delusion, and not being fully embodied human beings. So we, we you know we are embodied creatures, and you know if we if I just make a, one more comment about the Bhagavad Gita, like which is a beautiful teaching as and a, a wonderful for some a story, for, but for me a scripture on yoga. Uh, in, in the end, the last verse, where the kind of which uh, verse Patabi Joyce also often referred to, is like, like you know, uh, basically goes Yatra Yogeshwara Krishna like you know, wherever there is a you know Lord of Yoga, there is an embodied being who have experienced yoga. There, there are you know, a wield a guy who's ready to you know lift the bow, or there's a guy who's ready for action. If you go, you know, and then they say, when there is that connection between true yoga and a man who's willing to do work, you know, then, the, you know, then the, the whole Bhagavad Gita and Tatra Shri Vijayo, uh, what has it go again? Tatra Shri Vijayo Bhutir Dhruva Nitir Matir Mama. Like, there, there is wealth, there is uh, victory, bounty, and good moral. Mm-hmm. And, and that is indeed my conviction, says San, Sanjaya to Dhritarashtra. And, and to me, that is the very key element here is like, if we can come to experience a little clearer our shared kind of human existence of real yoga, not the fanciful pornographic yoga that, you know, a lot of us get caught up into, mm-hmm. but the real yoga. And if we're willing to apply our mind, body, senses to that, there will be greater wealth, victory, bounty, and better moral in our life. Because without good moral standards, the real yoga is not happening, I believe. Not to sound dogmatic or anything, but there has to do, be a refinement within our mental patterning and our very behavioral 
mechanism for this beauty of yoga to rise. And then, yes, there may be all God, all bounty, all wealth and glory. But but first, we have to be willing to to be part creators of that, if you like, co-creators of that. That's so beautiful. It reminded me of a time when Patabi Joyce was very sick, uh, lying in bed and you were in my store. There was only a few of us because there wasn't classes. Sharat was away and you were going in and reading the Bhagavad Gita <laughs> to him every day. Is that right? In Sanskrit. That happened. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh, that's yeah, fantastic, yeah. man. No, that, that, that was one of the most beautiful times uh, that I experienced actually with Patabi Joyce of just coming to his deathbed and seeing him broken and Mm. almost like at the end of his life and just communicating just very gently with him. He was lying down. He couldn't even sit up. And then I remember just brought the Bhagavad Gita and I said, shall I read about it? And he just like started nodding his head. And then I, I'd start reading and it was this beautiful energy. And sometimes he would like stop me and correct me a little bit. Nice. <laughs> was wrong. nice. My pronunciation was off Cause... and he was like, hey... <laughs> <laughs> even even Jayashri, he would correct her in the middle of chanting sometimes. Yeah, his yeah. Ma- mastery of Sanskrit is perfection. <laughs> that, that was his his nature. He was like that, and that's that's what tickled him. You know, he was a wow. he liked. There's much to say about Patabi Joyce, and uh, yes, um, the... his character. But what well, really reminded me also in that last verse when yoga meets the man of action. You know all good things all fortune all all things come and um to me i you your personality your character has always really embodied this man of action because over the years i have watched with astonishment at all of the many many projects that you have been involved with not just from the sidelines but like at the heart of the the project you have a real um, I don't know, iron will to just, and boundless energy, it seems to me, to um, devote yourself to so many different things, whether it's, you know, bringing Iyengar and Patabi Joyce together after, Into the same room. after, yeah, you know, however many years you can tell us 50. about that, or being a part of like 50, some, yeah. how many, 60? 60 years. Yeah. yeah, and bringing them together and being a part of different uh, video projects and um, and starting all of these uh, organizations. It's it's incredible. It's really uh, amazing to. But but also to to notice you. You're the only person I've ever seen willing to confront Patabi Joyce and Sharat on stage in conference on philosophical points. Like no one had that courage. Well, that that was a hunger for for learning, hunger to know it was with the utmost respect for yeah. always Patabi Joyce and Sharat. But it was like, there is a, you know, uh, something called, you know, Nididhyasana or wanting to know, uh, you know, um, in Vedanta. If Of course, one has to study a little first and reveal some of the enormous ignorance we have. And then there has to be a, uh, a perseverance and a continuum and a deepening and then there also has to do a kind of 
stirring up and wrestling with the text and, and, and daring to question things for, for things to fall into place. And I guess I was fortunate enough to have, at, at least at that point, had a good relationship with Sharat and Gurujit so I could ask them about this thing because there was a sincere longing to know. There was sincere wanting to know. And I, Guruji made a lot of points very clear to me about you know, this physical practice of how to avoid the, the pitfalls of our mind and kind of weed out the, the fancies uh, within ourselves. Uh, but what the, what the other thing you refer to, uh, Harmony, is that, yes, I, I think that, that I got involved in so many projects was just simply that I, you know, I ended up living in Mysore for a while and all these people come and I just try to help or be in some kind of service and suddenly I end up being involved in a film project and then in another study project and then I, it was just like this joy of being of service um, mm-hmm. and, and, and of, of helping out and, and that led to a lot of good things in my life actually, just um, uh, being, being of service. Tell us how you brought Iyengar and Patabi Joyce together. How <laughs> well, on earth did that happen? And how are you at the center of this? Yeah, that, that, that was just, I was, uh, well, I, I did my MA thesis at, at SOAS in London, basically uh, about the tradition of, of Krishna Macharya. And I was, you know, deeply, uh, you know, engaged with the kind of inquiring into the whole Krishna Macharya lineage and trying to better understand. You know, the teachings of Patabi Joyce, Krishnamacharya, and Desikacharya, Eji Mohan, and other people. Um, uh, and of course, I ended up meeting uh, BKSI and got on a few occasions and felt uh, just had this wonderful connection with him because you had this crazy lion, the kind of wild guy with his eyebrows kind of Jim. sparkling all over his forehead. Like, like and, antlers. <laughs> and I think he kind of liked, because I came in wanting to to talk to him and like, who are you from Ashtanga tradition when he took the, the Iyengar tradition? At that time, there was some kind of rivalry between, between the traditions. And I had just some great conversations with him and he invited me to come and practice with him and I did that and I had, had just had the most wonderful connection with BKS Iyengar. So I simply asked him because I wanted to bring him to Gruji's birthday in 2005 in his 90th birthday and uh, he ended up actually coming a few days after his birthday and uh, I, I just met him uh, outside of Bangalore and uh, brought him to Mysore and we went to Guruji's house and it was just a, a very, very healing um, moment uh, and a beautiful, beautiful experience of, you know, the, the unity and diversity, which I believe yoga ultimately is. And, there, you know, there's a lot of, stupidity going around the you know what is the proper method and the proper lineage holder to Krishna Macharya's tradition and you know to be frank it's very hard to trace the lineage beyond Krishna Macharya you know who who was Rama Mohan Brahmacharya did he actually live in Nepal or Tibet did he live in Varanasa did he live in Karnataka there's ambiguous tales uh, mm-hmm. on those accounts but Krishna Macharya did uh, he had 
you know, he published the Yoga Makarandam in 1934, then later Yoga Asana Galu in 1957, where was the first kind of organizing of these various series as we know it. And then later Patavi Joyce reorganized some of it. And then, you know, Ayengar went to Pune in 1938, doing his own style of, of teaching. And it was, you know, he was, re- you know, resentful mm-hmm. to Krishna Macharya <laughs> to the yeah. end of his, of his life, you know, because he was treated so so harsh by him. But mm-hmm. there's a lot to say in that matter. But, but it was vice versa as well, that Krishna Macharya was resentful of Iyengar's fame and his book deals and his film Yeah, that, that, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's definitely accurate. I, I wanted to say that to, to follow up on that story, I had this hilarious encounter with Pitabi Joyce in his in his office. I went in one day, and you could pronounce this better than I, and maybe you could help me out. I brought in um, a copy of the Yoga Tara Vali. Mm-hmm. How do you say that? that... Yoga Tara Vali. That's the uh, book oh, okay. by Shankaracharya, where you know it's this Bande Guru Nam Charan. Is that that's the first verse? It's a book on you know Kevala Kumbaka, a book on. Uh, you know how to still the, the the breath, basically how to do prolonged kumbhakas. That's where the opening chant of the Ashtanga tradition oh. is. Yeah. Well, I brought the book in because it had a, a foreword mm-hmm. by uh, Krishmacharya's son Deskachar, ah. and uh, I showed it to to Guruji, and he looked at it, and <clears throat> the contempt in his voice. He said, "Jessica Chatter, yeah. better you study with the younger." <laughs> and then he pulls out he pulls out the namarupa with with him and Iyengar on the cover right yeah and he pulls it out and he shows it to me he's like hmm now we are friends <laughs> and he throws the book onto a shelf yeah. it's like oh my god yeah this guy is <laughs> they're so competitive these people yeah they, they yeah. were to the to the end of their lives, actually, and uh, yeah, the, the, that is, you can't get the stripes out of the tigers, and the, no. the, that is all. <laughs> Speaking of tigers, I would uh, I would put you in that camp as well. <laughs> um, I want to get back to, if, to your samskaras and what what happened to you in your life. I being a Norwegian champion of boxing, for example. That's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You were 18 when that happened. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that, must, that must have been, you must have been boxing your entire life to do something like that. <laughs> well, I guess I was, here's another strike of luck. Uh, I'd only actually boxed for a couple of years, to, to be oh, honest. Oh, no, really? No, the, the truth is, uh, yes, it's, tr- it's, it's, it's true, but... Uh, <laughs> to cut a long story short, uh, when I was 16, I uh, ended up uh, being on a tall ship because I was a little kind of restless and uh, ruthless. So a tall ship who basically sailed to America to the 100-year anniversary for the Statue of Liberty, I think it was in 1986 or 86. Uh, so you were born in 70 then? I was 90. I'm born in 69. Okay. Yeah, so 85, maybe it was, I don't remember. But, uh, or maybe I was 17, 16 or 17, yeah. But uh, I was there, and uh, uh, as to, to cut a long story short, basically I was at Bermuda, I met this Rastafarian guy, I got a lot of pot, I brought it home to the boat, some guys got high, and it, the, the people actually found out it was me. So, so I, I was supposed to be sent home 
but I ended up jumping ship and I lived in in with a former breakdancer uh, from New York uh, and stayed with him for a couple of months in, in New York City. <laughs> and I lived in Harlem at 141st Street, Amsterdam Avenue, and ended up training boxing uh, and became deadly serious about boxing. And I just loved it. And I had this promoter who suddenly started you know, calling me the new white hope and they wanted to get me, oh make God. me become professional. And, and so I you actually were that just, good <laughs> in no, Harlem. No, 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 seriously, I wasn't that good. I was just a beginner and a novice then. But, but he saw some kind of potential in me. So he, he wanted me actually to become pro and it was ridiculous. And I was a bit naive and just, uh, you know, blue-eyed blue as, uh, as I am. And I went back home to Norway because my mother called me home, of course. And then uh, and then I started, I joined a local boxing gym uh, in Norway. And then after six months, I joined the Norwegian Championship the first time and I got silver medal. And next year, I, I won the gold medal. So that's the whole kind of story. <laughs> but the boxers, they talk about, like you really, like I remember Will Smith was training for Muhammad Ali and they said, about him, like he was really good, but we really needed to get him as a child because you, if you don't start as a child, you really are not going to, it's like ballet. You're really not going to get that good. Yeah. No, that, that's, I believe to be, to be, you know, to really be at your top, it, it's much better um, to start as a child. And you see a lot of boxes that start early. They have a, a different, you know, rhythm and moves and 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 basically presence and uh, uh, steadiness about them. But boxing is also so much else, you know, uh, and it's about unpredictability and it's about psychology and it's oh, sometimes it's just yeah. being a an hard hitter. And I was not the best technicians. I, I had a very hard. Um, punch especially my right hand uh, and and so uh, i was i was not this you know genuine technician i was more like i was unpredictable and i was like tough i guess at the time and i had a lot of pent up energy and i was wild and so if mm. i would become pro i would have probably been destroyed you know um, yeah. so i'm very glad that never happened but as an <laughs> amateur i i did okay and i <laughs> i won a few fights well we're glad um, it didn't happen too <laughs> were were your were your parents were they into this sort of thing I mean, they they must have supported you well uh, unfortunately I, I i didn't grow up with a father so what didn't you I had a very caring, beautiful mother that had a looking after my twin brother and I until we were about eight years old. And then she got married and married this kind of lieutenant in the army who was very strict and rigorous and mm, that's good violent young, and abusive and ended oh, up, you know, our, but he's, he also did his best. He was just caught up in his ignorance, but he was manic depressive and it was just very, very difficult. And we had a very poor you know, upbringing, dysfunctional family, kind of living in council flats in the beginning. And it was, it was, uh, so because of all of that, I had this extra pent up energy. So when I, they finally let me loose into a boxing ring, I had yeah. all this energy too. So that's maybe why it went okay. But 
Uh, that's my... that's interesting though. I just want to say that that was true for me as well. Is that you know having had so many stepfathers and being moved around from place to place to place, when they put me into a place where I could be violent, like football, I was I was rapaciously violent. <laughs> I was I was a savage, and people like you just be careful with Russ. He's going to hit you because it was I couldn't believe that they would let me hit someone. It was incredible. It was. It was still the best feeling I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a dangerous feeling, and you know, like yeah. with boxing too, the one who end up, you know, in a rage, and you know, rage can fuel some energy, but if you become angry, uh, you lose. You always end up losing. Right. Uh, mm. So. It's a an aggression never wins in the long run, you know. So, so I, I've yeah. heard some boxers say that to me when I, I was working with inner city kids, and sometimes we'd have there'd be boxers around who were helping the kids, and they would talk about that. That what was most important in boxing was breathing, mm-hmm. because if you could breathe, then you could think. Yeah, and you have to think your way through a match, like you're saying. And I, I wanted to ask you about if you felt that there were parallels for you with breath work in boxing or breath work in yoga. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say necessarily breath work in yoga, but I would say beingness, you know, of, of instinct, coming into your instinct and really being present in the moment. Because if you're not in a boxing ring, you kind of you get slapped and, and beaten or, or you you if you overcome by your fears and insecurities you you, you lose so there's a uh, matter of you know courage and and finding a steadiness in the midst of fire in the midst of challenges that uh, being in a boxing ring helps you to do if you don't kind of cop out and if you have some talents to move your body uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't see there is indeed you know boxing there's a you move with the breath and there is a, always an awareness of the breath but uh, the, the sad thing about boxing is that uh, you know you have all these other you know subtle impulses like I mentioned earlier you know rage or anger or that you become hard and you'd sometimes develop an armor around yourself to simply tolerate the abuse and the impact of pain, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and then you get into this mode of just survival and you become raw and you become primitive and this basic instinct kind of ruling you rather than the refined element of being that I believe is necessary to go into the deeper states of yoga. That's so fantastic that you're saying that it it is because I I've seen that violence has an impact on the brain as well, and so like the amygdala will change shape, uh, the the prefrontal cortex will lose circulation, so you're not thinking as well. You're hypervigilant. You're more violent uh, ultimately. How is it that you, as that child, could have developed this um, prowess in boxing, and yet also maintain this wonderful academic intelligence and curiosity. There seems to be a paradox about you. Okay, well, so let's just be clear about my kind of 
Uh, I, I'm a very, very, uh, I wouldn't call myself a, a Sanskrit scholar or an academic. I am a kind of mediocre scholar that is very interested in yoga and had, have had the privilege to study Sanskrit and refine my mind uh, through that study. But, you know, I would, uh, I would like to, you know, emphasize that my years as a boxer uh, shaped me for many years. And you could say, to a certain extent, I, I kind of suffered a little bit in my early years as a dancer and possibly early years as an academic because I was impacted by that, you know, uh, patterning of when you're challenged, you kind of, you become raw, you develop an armor and you become hard to deal with things instead of sit back, you know, be patient, explore, see the diversity and kind of use your intelligence. So sometime I was, you know, too driven uh, by my pattern. I would sometime rather bang my head against the wall until I realized re I had to try a different pattern. <laughs> uh, so I guess I was fortunate to, to get out of that um, hardness that the patterning of boxing give you. But I also had some beautiful, you could say maybe some skaras for, from my mom in her early life about love and, you know, compassion and trying to, to show care uh, and human interest in, in, in other people. But my academic skills were something that took me a long time to develop. And I would say that was something that first developed after many, many years of studying Sanskrit and engaging with yoga philosophies and texts and good discussions with, with, with other scholars and great teachers I had in Mysore that I studied with. And then, of course, it's the practice of, it's like the practice like everything else, you know, writing, article, publishing things. And also, you know, that's how you learn and, and develop. It's like a practice, like like everything. Nobody is, is born this or, or that. I think we have latent tendencies that we nourish and we develop and then we watch them grow. Mm. Yeah, you're a master at, I think, uh, dedicating yourself to something and, and really tending to it to and going it. all the way <laughs> whatever you're into Alex you are in it full stop um I'm curious how on earth did you transition from boxing into ballet that seems like such a very different world to enter into in some ways how did you even like <laughs> tell your friends like <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm in ballet now. You know, well, it's, it's I important to, to say that, you know, first of all and foremost, I was a break dancer. When I from I was about 14 to 16, the break dance movement kind of happened. Right. We had the Beat Street and, you know, Grandma's Electric. Grandma's the Mel Mel. Yeah, Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, uh, yeah. The Rocksteady Crew, the New York City Breakers. So they kind of influenced me as a teenager. And uh, funnily enough, I I was in a breakdance group called The Crew. We were four guys, and we also ended up becoming a region champion in, in, in breakdancing. So we ended up touring Norway, you know, doing these silly demonstrations wow. on these stalls and, you know, shopping oh, centers. And it was ridiculous. But um, so I had an interest for dance, and one guy in our crew was actually a, a modern jazz dancer also, and he introduced me to some 
hip hop and, and jazz rock. So I used to go once a week to just improve my footwork for boxing. I thought it would be good to kind of develop some rhythm and stuff. And I ended up really liking it and, and, and enjoying the, the challenge. And, and also by a accident, I ended up applying for a ballet school in Sweden. <laughs> Uh, and I was I just very, no. very lucky to be accepted because they were short of boys. So they, they just, yeah. I was probably the last guy they accepted. And and to be clear about that, I was the worst guy in the class, basically, because I had a stiff upper body and skinny legs and a body like Thomas Hearns, if you remember that boxer. And I, I remember Tommy Hearns. Very, yeah. That was kind of my boxing style, a bit like him, although I was more fascinated by Sugar Ray Leonard. But he was a little anyway, wild. Yeah, so, Hearns. Yeah, but, but uh, uh, when I was at a ballet school, the first year I was also uh, boxing and uh, was actually... Mm-hmm really enjoying that and my main focus was actually boxing the first year and that's when I also became Norwegian champion but at the second year I remember that you know shit I'm the worst guy in the class and some of the teachers would sit down and me say you know man you need to work out your fingers your feet because I had they used to call me well they're fly superman we were in the Gran Allegro and things like that because I had no sensitivity in my fingers I was too butch and too hard and too rough and I sometimes even used to, like, by accident, not knock people over in class, but I used to fall into them, and it was, like, embarrassing. <laughs> so I thought, okay, let me take this thing serious. So I stopped the boxing for a while and took extra ballet classes in the evening three times a week and got really serious involved. And then I took one year off the boxing, and it become, you know, two, and I got became a father, and I, I just... Uh, I, I, luckily, the, the the pause became very long and I never kind of took it up again be, before I started teaching some young guys in prison that I'm teaching yoga. I had to start to teach them boxing first before they wanted to try yoga. Right. <laughs> so uh, so I haven't really done much of it since and I'm, I'm very glad uh, I did that. But it, it was a whole new world to me, of course, the world of ballet, the world of dance. It was a great physical practice uh, and it was a challenge but I, I somehow loved the way that I I was the worst guy in the class and I had this kind of you know just uh, will in me that I had to had to improve I wanted to show them that I was not the worst guy in the class <laughs> and I ended up dancing uh, uh, doing a uh, yeah uh, doing some so I I, at least I didn't end up as the worst guy in the class. Yeah, I'm I, sure you didn't. <laughs> I'm sure you rose right up to the top. I, no, I, to be honest, I was, I was lucky and I got, I worked later in a few, you know, musical production like, you know, West Side Story and, and mm-hmm. Jesus Christ wow. Superstar and, but and I would, but I was usually typecast. I was never good enough to get a job in the opera or in a proper ballet company because basically I didn't have the proper point. I hadn't good enough turnout, and I was my legs were too skinny, and I wasn't uh, grounded enough. So yeah, you it also was a had very a good training time. since you were ten years old. <laughs> I, I yeah. was born with a massive turnout and a perfect point, and I. But I was like in my ballet course, I walked in, I was like, oh, he looks the part. And yet as soon as the music started, they were all like, oh, he, <laughs> he's fucking 
dead inside. He's like, there's no fucking connection for him to the music. And you, they could also like, there never will be. Right. <laughs> and I still today, like I'm trying, I like try to like keep a rhythm, you know? And I was like, I um, like within 10 seconds, I'm gone. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Do you think that your years dancing helped you in the yoga practice at all, in the asana practice? Yeah, definitely. Because when I was dancing, I was always trying too hard. I was pushing myself. And in the yoga, I was also doing that a little bit in the beginning. But then I realized I needed to relax with it and, and, and you know, relax into life, relax into being and, you know, be with things as they are rather than always wanting to change things or setting new goals and having new standards, but simply learning to be present with what is. And that's the greatest thing uh, yoga taught me. Mm, I love that. How on earth did you come to yoga? Because I know that it wasn't through your dance. It like wasn't? Many dancers do. Of course you were doing yoga through his dance. <laughs> no, well, oh. I would do some type of pilates exercise and as a dancer you're always looking for you know that ultimate practice to set you up for a stage or set you up for class and be be at your peak performing but for me it was just pure accidents again i i i walked into yoga class i was with my son uh, benjamin who was like five years at the time and uh, and we just it was just him i and a friend and two yoga teachers I met a friend on the subway in Stockholm and he just asked you wanted to find yoga class. And I said, yeah, why not? We didn't have nothing better to do. And I remember lying there in Shavasana, there was this feeling of, wow, what is this practice? Wow, why do I feel wow. this beautiful calm? And for me, it was like a hand who just basically found its glove, like you could say physically. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't so drawn that was something that happened later you know the you know philosophy and all of that to me it was just pure the physical sensation i got from ashtanga the first yoga class i did was just pure bliss and felt so good and i just wanted to pursue that so that's how my yoga journey started and so how did you pursue it well i as <laughs> as life has very funny turns i actually started practicing that very summer in Stockholm. And then three months later, I was moving to um, to London, uh, actually, due to some dance and, and theater work. But then that thing, when I got to London, I was so immersed in the yoga scene. So I decided to put everything else on hold. And I started practicing with John Scott, who, who was a oh. wonderful influence uh, and, and help. In London, right? In London. He was there before Hamish took it, yeah. Yeah, that was in 1996 when he was teaching in St. John's Wood. And I was there and I got the key and I kind of used to open the door for him every morning because he, he lived in the south part of London. And then I also started studying um, and I met this professor at SOAS, although, you know, I did not have a proper... Uh, you could say a level degree because I I I spent my kind of uh, you know uh, I don't what you say frivolous or violent or crazy youth in prisons and doing drugs so I hadn't I didn't have wait that. wait you you did have a, you, I'm sorry you had a, a violent crazy drug drug past <laughs> not violent crazy drug but what I'm trying to say is that Somewhat. when okay. most mm -hmm. kids 
grow up and lie the foundation for their future, for their career, their job, their development, their study, whatever they be, which normally happens between you like, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18. I was, you know, getting involved in all kinds of problems and, and, and doing silly things. So I never really completed. I I got good levels at school uh, up till about, you could say, um, 10th grade. And then after that, I was kind of on a wild rocker. But once I started a yoga again, I wanted to like take my studies up seriously again. So I started privately just studying and engaging and taking a few courses. And it ended up bringing me to SOAS the university in the end in London. <clears throat> but I was very fortunate to be accepted. Uh, uh, and then the, because I had a very good um, supervisor who, d- who just kind of guided me. But what would uh, needs to be said about my yoga journey in, in, in London is that only after a few ye- months, I would say probably maybe four or five months in, in London, I uh, had the opportunity to work as a cook for a guy called Godfrey Devereaux, a dynamic yoga teacher, this kind of self-proclaimed tantric mystic living in in a teepee. And and, and that was a wonderful time with him, uh, seeing the ups and downs of a crazy community and a crazy yoga teacher. And it was, uh, he, he taught me a lot of great things. And then later I ended up going to Derek Ireland for four months, studying and working for him in Down in, uh, in, in Greece. Crete, Crete, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I came back to SOAS and started my one-year BA course. Mm-hmm. And then Can after, I just interrupt yeah. you for a moment? It, that would, I, I would suppose that Hamish and you probably knew each other quite well. You were both doing the same thing. Well, Hamish was actually living in Edinburgh then at the time. He had finished with Derek. I met uh, Hamish first time in uh, in ninety eight in Mysore. Okay, but then we ended up living in London together, and yeah. Please continue. So then you went back to SOAS and you started a, a BA. Yes, I started back at SOAS doing a BA in uh, in Sanskrit, and I remember the first year just like being shocked at how hard <laughs> Sanskrit was and oh man this is all I was doing was basically studying and because you know I had to you know prove myself get proper degrees and, and pass so I took it very seriously the first year but it was like a bit of a wake-up call and I I did well and I was uh, happy and but in I was also very fascinated by Mysore and Patabi Joyce and Patabi Joyce was he he had his 80th birthdays, uh, you know, a few years earlier. And Amma, his wife, had just died that right. Christmas. Uh, so I just, she, she, I thought, I want to go and meet Patabi Joyce and see what it's like, you know. Uh, and I also wanted to study Sanskrit in India. So I went to India uh, and studied. Uh, I stayed there for almost 15 months the first time. Can, can I just ask, so many of our listeners, when, we, when they hear that, so many of our guests come on and then they say, oh, yeah. And then like Harmony and I, we went to India for six months or eight months and or 15 months, or 15 months. <laughs> and like, but so many of us were so punk and stone broke and artists. And like, how did you manage to afford that? Yeah, how did I manage to afford that? I had my grandfather inherited me a little bit of money. It was like. Uh, I think it was 30,000 US dollars or something like wow, that. So I, yeah. I had a little bit of savings. And then 
My mother had died also a few years prior to that. So I had a little bit of, of, of savings, but that was not, uh, yeah, so that was a little bit. And I also had a little bit of a, a grant from the Norwegian government uh, pretending to be studying in London, but used the money to go to India. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's how I managed. Yeah. Right, okay. And you were living with Jai Shuri, were you? That was a few years later. At first, I was living in Lakshmipuram. But then a couple of years later, I moved in with uh, Jayashri and uh, her great extended family. And that was <laughs> a very, very yeah, good experience. But, but can you say first, um, what was it like for you getting off the plane and entering India and then meeting Patabi Joyce for the first time? Can you describe your your emotions and, and the sensations of the shock of being in India at first for, for yourself? Well, first time, I remember landing in Mumbai in the middle of the night, and it was like almost pitch dark and this warm wind kind of with different smells blowing towards you. And then I, a little kind of groggy from the whole journey, I get off the plane and then suddenly I get out of the airport and I feel treated like a rock star everybody hey you mr mr let me help you and like a hundred indians trying to help me grab hold of my suitcase and ask me where i was going so that was a bit so i I, i've had some friends who've been to india before so they just kind of guided me get on the bus to the domestic airport because i was going to bangalore so i managed to get on the bus go to bangalore and by the time i was so tired i was just i would find a local bus and i would get to to Mysore, and of course, that first ride on the bus from Bangalore was oh, crazy. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I never Definitely. seen that kind of violent, uh, you know, uh, driving crazy driving before. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, it, it kind of, but I was so tired, so I kind of uh, fell asleep. And then coming to Mysore was like a whole new world, basically uh, from. Uh, being in everything in that time there was hardly any four-wheelers there was a few ambassadors and contessas but that that was it there was only two wheelers basically so it was Mysore was a very quiet and calm place at the time Mm -hmm. and um, I since I was there to also study I I got in you know I, I met some people and I first I lived actually in Manasangongotri up to the Mysore University campus Mm. Uh, and I end up living there for uh, about two weeks, and then I moved to Lakshmipuram, uh, and I had the fortune to meet a very nice Brahmin family and Vaishnavites, <laughs> actually. Yeah, good. And, That's good and for you. Yeah. Moved, uh, <laughs> moved in with them, and yeah, stayed with them for a couple of years. But then they developed their house and their uh, yeah extended family move in so then i had the opportunity to move in with jaya city and stay there for a couple of years for my where were you studying sanskrit yes that's something that i was very very fortunate to hook up with some teacher at the sanskrit patashala or sanskrit mysore college as it's called uh, who's next to the palace uh, and that was just a beautiful beautiful time and that was one of the, my main reasons why I kept going back to India because one of the most happiest moments I've had is like sitting in that old Sanskrit college <laughs> with a kind of paint flaking off the wall, sitting on a kind of wooden tablet and reading Sanskrit text with some of these teachers was just a beautiful, beautiful experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I felt 
I feel very, very fortunate to 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 have studied there and to meet some of, you know, having some friends and classmates there at the Meister mm-hmm. Sanskrit College it was some friends I got from life. Yeah. And is that the same college that Patabi Joyce was teaching at? Yeah, he was teaching in He's that direct. very... He was teaching... Uh, in the in the room and his uh, the pictures of Krishna Macharya and you know uh, the, this other guy they called Mahadevan uh, and, uh, yeah, Mahadev. was also uh, ha- hanging there mm-hmm. um, up till about uh, a few years ago and he he taught there I think uh, from nineteen thirty seven to seventy three or something like that yeah. or, or well, hold on. Yeah, something like that, or maybe nineteen four, something around ni- late nineteen thirties to like seventy two, seventy three. I think he was teaching, wow. and he was t- in that very same room that he was teaching, which is the, was the room of Gangadhara Bhatt, who was teaching um, basically Nyaya or Tarka, uh, as I were called. You know, he was one of my teachers, and in that room, I, I spent a lot of time. Um, studying and uh, sitting on the floor, and Patabi Joyce was, of course, the the yoga teacher, or the you know some would call him the, the gym teacher at the <laughs> Sanskrit College. Yeah, uh, nice. And and unfortunately, yeah, he had a very low salary and wasn't really uh, respected as as many of the other scholars at the Sanskrit College. But he became mm. friends with many people, and he also did a, a Vidvan degree in in Vedanta. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah. That's so interesting that he wasn't as respected. That's I I'd never heard that phrase described to him before because he was because it seemed like he his knowledge of Sanskrit pronunciation was so robust mm-hmm. that I thought he would be highly respected. Yeah, but any Brahmin who who had studied a little bit and you know who have gone would have a clear, accurate pronunciation of Sanskrit, but you know the depth of knowledge and like. Patabi Joyce, he was very good and he had, you know, a zillion verses that he could quote by heart about, you know, from the Yoga Upanishads, the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, so Hatha Yoga Pradipika, things like that. But he wasn't like a, you know, you could say a, a deep, deep scholar who mm. who had a, you know, really solid grasp of a of a Shastra uh, thoroughly. He He was good and he was you know, in all ways, I'm sorry to say that, you know, a mediocre scholar, but he wasn't <laughs> like a, you know, a, a, no, but it, if we're going to call facts the fact, that that's yeah. what it was. He wasn't, like some people say, Patabi Joss was a professor of Sanskrit at the Sanskrit College. That's not true. He was a asana teacher for the mm-hmm. kids studying Sanskrit there. Oh, uh, but he, he also that's studied, quite different. Yeah. <laughs> but so he was huh. never like a professor of Sanskrit, like some people say. But yeah. he had a very good grasp of of the Sanskrit philosophy and the yoga philosophy, and particularly the you know uh, Advaita Vedanta philosophy that he he studied. But but he was not a you know respected scholar in in the inner circles of the Brahmin community in Mysore. He he never was. Oh, yeah. I see. What was his feeling towards towards you? Did you feel like he had any special affection towards you that you were there, really principally 
to study Sanskrit and then do asana perhaps on the side? Mm-hmm. Well, in the beginning when I met him, you know, I, I also said I was studying with a guy called Shankarandaraina Joyce and I didn't know it at the time, but <gasps> oh, he no. and Shankarandaraina Joyce had a big rift and fall yeah. out. So he just basically kind of pushed me away and said, oh, you come back. So I ended up going to his doorstep three months in a row begging to ask him me ask him to enroll me as a teacher and eventually he did wow uh, and basically the first three and a half months I was studying with Patabi Joyce he totally ignored me he didn't even look at me and he kind of felt I was annoying and it's just a yeah. nuisance good teaching uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but for somehow it worked on me so uh, but mm-hmm. the way how it ended up at that time, after three and a half months, I was like, you know, I had a few bouts of diarrhea. I was sick and I was like just broken and I felt I just had enough. And I just went up to Patabi Joyce and, and also I was stinging about my money. So after the third month or fourth month, I asked to get my money back after I just paid <laughs> because I... <laughs> Because <laughs> I wanted to leave and he said, no, no, it's not possible and kind of brushed me out of the office. But I, I wouldn't give up. And I said, hey, come on, you know, like, and I was trying to argue with him. He said, no, you go away, you know, and come back in a few months. And I kind of accepted that. And when I travel to India, you know, and you get to see things and think over things. And I came back to Patabi Joyce with a kind of new sense of wanting to try to explore what he actually wanted to teach me rather than all my pre-concepts and, um, you know, uh, my expectation to get something from him. And I think he saw that and something changed in me once I was just willing to, like, to be with things as they are instead of to impose my myself on him. Then he actually... When I took a step back, he was ready to to teach me. And then, um, you know, gradually a very, very beautiful relationship developed that I'm infinitely grateful for. Then ultimately, after several years, you gained your certification with him. It sounds perhaps it happened rather quickly. Do you you think that your progress was, was quick? Well, I don't think any other have got a certification after four years from the first time they come to Mysore. So I was, right. I was extremely <laughs> lucky. And, and you could say it's, it was a little bit premature in, in some ways. Uh, but I was, yeah. Uh, how it happened, actually, I, I remember I was sitting in, <laughs> because, you know, at the time in London, Hamish was teaching Mysore style, and I ended up teaching in a place called Yoga Place in Bethnal Green. And of course, Hamish was certified, and I was a little je- jealous that Hamish got certified, and I right, didn't. So yeah, yeah. I remember sitting to go, "Oh, I heard her, her Hamish got certified," and I thought, "Great!" And I kind of mentioned that to to Guruji, and he said, "Yes, you you apply too." Oh, <laughs> then, wow! I came to his office and wrote this application, and I had a kind of this little interview with him, and then uh, I I kind of yeah, cut a long story short, I got this uh, certification. So fantastic. That's I think... how I started pranayama. It's like, Gurdjie, should, should I also do the pranayama courses? Yeah, yeah, you come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so much of life is sometimes about being in the right place at the right time and saying the right thing. Yeah, no, certainly. 
you remember you remember we did the the pranayama together alex with harmony we we did our first class um and you were in the class there with us i remember actually do you remember this i really fondly remember a um i don't know what i don't know a polite way of saying this um a beggar woman What's the what's the politically correct way of saying that? A street urchin. <laughs> I don't oh, know. A sweet sweeper or a kind of the, the maid or that you could say the, the maid. Yeah. Well, the maid started. A maid started banging on the gate outside the the pranayama room, outside the yoga room, uh-huh. and Guruji started shouting at her from the window, uh-huh. and you and I jumped up and we were like going to go take care of her for Guruji. Uh-huh. We uh-huh. did that together. We were like shirtless and like, you know, like street <laughs> yeah, yeah. brawlers. We were going to go beat the shit out of this lady no. for Guruji. No, no. Do you remember doing that together? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I remember it so well. No. I was like, man, me and Alex are going to go yeah, take care of this problem. I, 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 that was in the new Shala, right? I remember. Yeah. We would, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah amazing. <laughs> I, I also, I want to ask you, um, there's another sort of sensitive story that I want to ask you about that's so random. I'm seeing so many connections between us and our lives. Um, you, you went back to England after your certification and mm-hmm. uh, in 2002, and I think in 2003 or 2004, by random circumstance, man, I was roommates with this woman, Kat, in mm-hmm. London. Mm-hmm. And Kat um, had just broken her femur at at Bethnal Green doing Ashtanga yoga mm. in your classroom. Yes. And do you do you remember this? Do you remember how yes, it happened? And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean it's it is it is tragic, it's horrible and it's infinitely sad and and and, and, and complicated. And you know, Kat used to to come to the yoga place and, and, and practice and I would kind of mostly leave her to herself. Uh but then I remember one day she's trying to get into Marichasana B and I would just right. gently go behind her and try to bring her palms uh, together behind her back and, and right, say, as you, know, you would, just, as ju- anyone ju- would. Ju- just, just, just sit there. I said, please be calm, take it easy. I said, but then she ended up jerking her body forward, wanted to get her uh, her body on the f- her head on the floor or something. We had witnesses who saw all this. I did not right. touch her or push her forward. I was just standing behind her, basically trying to put her hands together. But she ended up pushing her body forward, and then there was this like s- terrible sound, like Dunk! like oh. this d- dent sound, and 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 she just ended up screaming in yeah. this kind of horrific agony. And we were all, everybody in the class. Hey, what happened? What happened? And we, she couldn't. We tried to, you know, shall we help you up? Shall we go? And then she couldn't. She couldn't move basically. So we had to uh, call the ambulance, and they came in on a stretcher and took her out. And we went to the hospital. And later we went to visit her, and we heard she had broken her femur, which is one of the right. biggest bones in the body. And yeah. that is still a miracle to me how somebody can br- break their femur in Marichasana B. And in mm. fact, she told me that um, the nurses and doctors accused her of lying about her injury. They said, we know that, you know, you're probably a victim of abuse. We know that someone has been, you know, threw you down a stairs because this, yeah. this kind of injury only happens when you're hit by a car. 
Huh. And it, and to me, it's just like the most horrific event that I could ever imagine happening to me as a yoga teacher. Oh, I know. Is yeah. someone having a radial fracture yeah. of their femur in my yeah. class while my yeah. hands huh. were touching them. Hmm. Even standing close Even to standing them. close <laughs> well, to them. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, it, it was horrible. And for a long time, you know, I, I felt, you know, just like infinitely sad. But mostly, you know, I felt sad on behalf of Kat because I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong and it wasn't my fault. And there was a lot of other witnesses. I had a woman called Sarah Litton that I was teaching with and a right. And another woman was also helping and assisting. And we all saw in it, it was like it's this crazy magic, how it even could could happen. Uh, but um, to me, it's still a mystery. And uh, I, I, I haven't actually... I think it's yeah. really a, a stress fracture. But normally a stress, stress fracture happens, you know, in the lower limbs, um, you know, maybe a... a like Gym, a gymnast will get a stress fracture in yeah. the fibia, something like that. Um, it's it's amazing. So when I was living with her, she was she's a Wiccan. I don't know if you knew that that she's a witch, and oh. so she does all of these sort of um, ceremonies <laughs> every day. She does okay. do magic, and and so there was a strange kind of combination of um, bitterness about the event happening yeah. what you know, where she felt the responsibility lay because hmm. putting someone's fingers together isn't going to fracture their femur but she felt that you were responsible yeah. yeah but it's it's um it's there was also all this other sort of thing where like she has this kind of like magic glint in her eye about how things happen because she is this you know a wiccan mm-hmm. it was it was really sort of extraordinary. And I know that everyone was was talking about it in Mysore, like, how did this happen? How could this happen? Hamish and I had long conversations about it at Hema's and in Mysore and Gokulam. And it's, I mean, how does it affect someone? Like, how did it affect you? How do you think it, it affected your career having had this happen? Well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people thought I was the kind of maybe yoga butcher that would mm. destroy people and, and hurt people, and that's a terrible thing to to uh, if that reputation ever would circulate. But but I knew in my heart that that I hadn't done anything wrong, and and it wasn't my fault. And I had shown the utmost care to try and help her and and and, and support her and assist her. And how this thing happened, I just it, it was. Um, uh, it's still a mystery to me, like I said, and that's the only thing that um, made me stand tall. And although I've heard other people kind of uh, come with, you know, remarks that I was being care, un, you know, careless at the time in, in London, and but but um, I, 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 you know, at certain time you just have to stand up for what's truth and, and what what happened and we all have our different opinion of truth and ultimately I was the responsible person in charge in class at the time and uh, I wish I could have avoided it but it did happen and now I we all have to you know stand and face those consequences and but the truth was that um, 
it, it wasn't done. It, it didn't happen due to force or harm. It wasn't pushed in any way. Mm. Uh, she kind of jerked her body forward, and uh, and and and, and uh, you know that, that is. Um, you would think that when somebody in Marichasana B puts their something would happen in the ankle or the knee joint right. or you know the mm-hmm. hip or something, but that yeah. the femur breaks off in the breaks off in the middle, it's mm. it, it's crazy. It's yeah. simply yeah. crazy. Yeah. Do I you would... think that like it's changed your feelings towards adjustments? Because this is such a big conversation in the yoga community. I mean, with the Me Too movement and like, should we give adjustments? Should we not give adjustments? Should people have cards? The tradition, the very strong adjustments within Batabi Joyce's tradition. Yeah. uh, What's your feelings around that? Well, the short answer is that for anybody, going deeper into the physical practice of yoga it's very hard to progress without physical adjustment you kind of need that support in order to to sh- for somebody who shows you uh, you know a new landscape of your physical being and that you step into a new borderline uh, but unfortunately in a lot of people try to be exactly like Patabi Joyce. You know, he had, you know, 50, 60 years of experience <laughs> when mm. we practiced with him. And <clears throat> a lot of other modern teachers, they have this attitude that they're going to fix everybody and show that they're a good teacher and get people into the various asana. And then they end up doing more harm than good, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so, it's so interesting because I, I had studied with Guy Donahue, um, mm-hmm. who now also, uh, ironically, is a student of Shankarana Joyce, mm-hmm. um, and Guy, Guy's adjustments were incredibly deep, powerful, mm-hmm. but also super intuitive and intelligent, mm-hmm. and it was fucking brutal being his student. But I signed up for it. But it was also quite safe, and I never got injured in that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was doing things a little bit differently from Batabi Joyce. He would use a towel. He would make sure that there was never any skin contact. You know, you're never going to be in a position where you're touching a woman uh, like her breasts, say, to do an adjustment and reach out to D. You're never going to touch someone's skins. There wouldn't be any accidents. All that to say that when I got to Mysore and the time that Harmony and I got there in 2003, 2004, 2005, I was disappointed. Uh, no one was giving hard, deep adjustments, except in backbends. You get you get a strong backbend adjustment, and they basically ignore you the rest of the time. And I was like, man, I was, I was seeing more development. I was getting worked harder in guys, Shala. <laughs> you know that was intense. This is this is like a, it was like a vacation. But the energy, <laughs> I think, of the room is so intense yeah. there that yeah. it. It does a lot to transform your practice. And also being relaxed, mm. you do end up, you know, yeah. being being getting easier into the practice. I wanted to know if you felt those hard adjustments from Patabi Joyce and you know did you feel that you were missing anything as time went on? Uh no, I did I mean definitely in the in the 
old Charlotte in Lakshmipuram, he was a it was a smaller room. It was easier for him to move around. He was a little bit more on it, you could say. Uh, there was a change in two thousand and two or three when he moved to Gokulam, uh, but uh, as you say, harmony there. I mean, I believe as a Mysore teacher myself after twenty years, you know, I I feel that sometimes you can disturb um, the practice of people when you are on their case all the time and you know mm. fidgeting and moving them about. And there is mm. a, I think that uh, also with the practice that Patabi Joyce and Sharat they matured. You know, if you look into the early tradition, a lot of people of the early Western people that came, they had a, you know, they were taught like first, second, and third series on their yeah. first All trip. once. Four practicing. months, first month, first series, <laughs> All month, three series in series. one day and just lying yeah. home yeah. and recovering. Like or, Richard. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's too intense and too crazy and it's like violent and abusive to the body. And I think they also chilled out, calmed down. They need, don't need to prove themselves anymore with, you know, respect to Iyengar or other tradition. They 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 knew what they were having and they, everything mellowed out a bit. And my experience is that, yes, I got a lot of help from Guruji moving. Of course, first time just managing Kapotasana or getting into like Ganda Berundasana, you know, like I needed help. I couldn't do it without them. And once I've had the experience of doing the pose, I could eventually, you know, get into it more thoroughly myself. Uh, so for that, it was like a, a very helpful and steady adjustments. But after some time, it's it's the very beingness of being in the room and what observing your own mind and keeping focus on the things that really matter that help you to 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 change. Um, but I would say that. Guruji's adjustments were unique. He would he would seem a little kind of brutal and buff and harsh, but he was very, very sensitive when you get into the kind of deeper adjustments and very careful, at least he was to me. Uh, after some time in the beginning, he was beating me up basically with, with the adjustments because he probably had a, <laughs> a grudge to me because I was, uh, you know, having an attitude of being Shankaranara and enjoy students. I don't know. But, uh, but <laughs> after some time, I, I saw that he had a deep sense of care and was paying attention. Uh, so, so, so there is a, a wisdom in, in, in watching things unfold over time which a steady practice does and enable us to go deeper into a form and investigate and explore the beingness and the suchness of things. And, uh, you know, learning to be closer to this intimacy with the breath and experience uh, a, a re relaxation into being, I would say. And that, I believe, a Mysore style practice is very, very conducive to that. And, uh, to anybody who want to deepen their yoga practice, you are dependent on some simple adjustments and guidance in order to go deeper, I believe. What I, what I love about the Mysore practice and just like I'm also a little bit particular about who I'm practicing with and in what room because I feel like there's so much transmission that happens through those adjustments, through the touch, not just like in a physical way, but in a in a very energetic way, in a way that's beyond words. And even in the room itself, you feel like 
like the energy of the person. And as a teacher, I mean, you're kind of holding that space with your energy. And I think there's something just so valuable about practicing with teachers who have a deep experience of yoga, not just yoga asana, which is helpful if you want to improve your asana practice. But like you're saying, that sense of presence and suchness and seeing beyond the physical and like love and nurturing and all of those those qualities, you know, is so helpful in in keeping the practice growing and deepening. Mm-hmm. And the practice, you know, it's never what we think it is. You know, the asanas are the starting point, and we think we're going to get better as you progress through the series, but we're not. Actually, we ended up we ended up getting worse. But if we turn our focus into something else and learn to relax with life, then something beautiful develops. And, and, and that's, to me, that's the real yoga. Something you referenced a little bit earlier that I would like to, to dig in, because uh, I, I feel like it, it was a major event in our community and, and a real schism. Um, as you said, that conflict is an opportunity for learning. Um, when the, the hashtag Me Too happened and then it started to touch our community and uh, the realization um, that the greater public had around Guruji's adjustments, which um, could... Uh, be abusive and also be perceived as abusive or um, depending, maybe I shouldn't say depending or but at all, but um, many people felt so. Uh, At that time, um, a friend of ours uh, from Hong Kong, an authorized teacher named Nigel Marshall, had opened up a forum for remarks and for a conversation on this um, event that I'd like to to hear your thoughts on. I was really very saddened that uh, Nigel uh, had been excommunicated, that he had his his um, authorization stripped from him. Uh, he was taken off the list. And it seemed to him when, when he told me about it, that it seemed the only thing that he could see was that because he had opened up a forum for thought yeah. and a, a forum for remarks. At some point in this, in this process, uh, I don't know if he showed them to me, but I saw a letter that perhaps was private, forgive me, but a letter that you had written to Sharat mm-hmm. expressing your frustration um, with how events were unfolding. Can you speak to this and your impressions of, 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 this, um, of this event and the schism from your, your point of view? Yeah, certainly. And there's much to say um, on that account. Um, uh, but first of all, when the kind of Me Too campaign happened and, you know, when Karen Haberman or Karen Rain came forth with the kind of accusation and other people that Guruji had kind of touched them in appropriate places came about, uh, uh, a lot of people couldn't, you know, uh, be- believe it. But later when the picture was shown and, and, and the depth of her frustration and agony came forth, also it was apparent that you know, something serious had happened. You can't really argue against some of the, you know, uh, graphic pictures that later has been circulated of where Guruji put his hands. And it's wrong and it is inappropriate in in all levels. And it's just sad. Uh, and there's much to say about that. And it, it's it's uh, it, you know it's 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 
just absolutely wrong and, and, and condemning. But I think Nigel was trying to create some kind of forum uh, to speak about it, uh, the way at least I understood it, and instead of bringing about some discussion into this thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and then I didn't really pay much attention to all of those discussions that circulated. But, you know, then rumors get in the way and people get pr- proud and uh, a lot of, you know, gossip get around. And, uh, but just the fact that he got stripped of his authorization because of something like that, I find it deeply tragical. And also it shows the, the level of, of fear and, and ignorance that... Uh, were kind of ruling the mind of the people who, you know, decided to do such a thing and and not giving space to an open forum and discussion what what the community really needed at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was sad, deeply sad. Now, to your other (laughs) question... I mean, this is something, of course, that has followed me. Uh, I think it was in 2017 or something when mm. this happened. It's actually three or four, four years ago now. And, you know, uh, because, uh, I mean, I used to be very close with Guruji and, uh, and, and shut up and was always deeply, deeply respective of shut up. And, of course, I met Sharat first time in 98 and then, you know, also being there with John Scott and Hamish first time he came to the Heathrow airport and stepping foot outside of India and <laughs> introducing him to like London, Madonna and the Western yeah. world right. and yeah. seeing that it was beautiful and seeing his innocence and Riding with him and on his bicycle, on my bicycle in London, or oh, on my motorbike in London, driving with him, and he was coming twice to teach at the yoga place in London, and we just had a—I I had such a love and gratitude for Sharat because he was a very playful and innocent and kind of pure soul uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. And then later, you know, he came to Hong Kong a couple of times. I invited him to come there and went on some travels with him. And I had a few arguments with him, but I always believed in, like, good friends. You should always be able to say against one another and have different opinions and find clarity and and, and truth kind of together. And for some reason, you know, like maybe 2012, 2013, I got involved in all these other projects. I went to Allahabad and part of a documentary of the Kumbamela. And I was just feeling myself being little kind of withdrawn from Mysore. I didn't have the proper time to, to practice in Mysore. And then also, on, on, fortunately, sometime the a whole, you know, the, the kind of, relationship with Sharat got a little sour. I felt, I think, first time in early 2017 when I brought my wife to meet Sharat after we got married and he was just, I think this was already maybe in 2013, 14, but he was something being a little short and I don't know why that happened. It could be, you know, gossip. When these kind of incident happened in 2017, uh, 
when suddenly all of these senior teachers were taking off the list and a lot of authorized teaching was suddenly overnight just kind of wiped off a list. Mm. I kind of wait, wait a minute, you know, what is this? If uh, This is just wrong uh, because a lot of people have put their life on the line. As you said, you know, you, they, they saved up for months and years to go to India year after years to study and get an authorization or a certification. And suddenly it's just like wiped out. It, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. So I remember That's how I, I was, felt for sure. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was just so stunned and I was felt this is just wrong. Mm-hmm. So I ended up calling a friend of mine. I, I called him and I talked to him and I said, what do you think about this thing? And he was just being very honest and say, you know, like, yeah, I mean, maybe strong, but I say, you know, we should do something. We should talk to Sharat and try to, this is just wrong. And he said, look, I don't want to go into any more arguments with Sharat. He, you know, he had problems with Sharat before and he was just very clear. I, I can't take any arguments with Sharat. I don't want, I have a, we have a very good relationship now. I want to take care of that. And I was a little bit, are you kidding me? I'm like, I, come on, be serious here. What mm-hmm. is it that really matters? Is it your relationship with Sharat or is it like, what is happening in our community? And we ended up, you know, having a bit of a, just not, not a big, but a minor argument on the phone. I said, this is just kind of ridiculous. And I tried to send him, I kind of drafted a letter first and send it to him. And we had another conversation. He said it was, you know, it was not necessary. Uh, but but then I, I send, send it to Sharat and I, because I first sent it to Sharat and I wanted to address these things and I wanted him to really know with some of the underlying things that have been simmering in our community for a while. And I tried to call him a couple of times and I used to, you know, I sent him lots of text messages and no response whatsoever. And then in a kind of moment of rage and personal frustration and kind of irritation i just said okay this is it let's just so i, I kind of published it on, mm-hmm. on social media oh, and i right. yeah, kind that's of that's how i saw it uh, and you know one part of me felt it was bad i was like betraying my teachers and betraying like the community i've been part of but i just felt like you know another kind of naive side of me felt like you know what really matters here is truth it's justice and to stand up for the things that really matters because what really matters is that yoga is for the greater good of all for humankind for us to grow as an individual a community you know and and it's not just for you know uh, uh, personal fancies and uh, you know, uh, idealized. Uh, oh, how do I say it? It's not for somebody's, you know, personal gain, personal yeah gratification. Well, that, that's the sad thing, and that's the <laughs> benefit for every everybody who get. You know, they say in India, there's a saying when the when the money goes up, the yoga goes down. <laughs> and basically, you know, yeah, like, wow. if you. If you serve the money, you lose some of that inner essence of yoga. And and mm. in one way, if 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 your money is your god, that's what your main focus is. If serving people, serving humanity, serving you know, I'm not 
Sharat, I still have the greatest respect for Sharat, and I are deeply respectful and grateful to Sharat for the great teachings, all the great time I had with him, and all my years in Mysore. But I'm deeply disappointed how he could just, in a brush of a moment, just wipe a lot of senior Western teachers that had, some of them had taught him how to, you know, ride a motorbike, how to swim, how to kind of deal with the Western life, how to kind of be. And and suddenly, a lot of those people, because they hadn't been coming to Mysore for a long time, or he felt they were like not teaching in an appropriate way, they were just brushed off the list. And, and that I found infinitely sad and, 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 and painful. Yeah. One, one phrase that I, I keep coming back to, and I've have continuously heard in my experiences in Mysore is the lineage holder and who holds the lineage. And it's such a weird word to me because it's linear. You know, it means, it means a line and very few things are actually linear and things are often very much colored by context. Uh, I think, I think especially when we think about Say what you studied, which is the the students and lineage of Krishmacharya. You know, there's so many of them, and they all are lineage holders. You know, there are other students of Ashtanga Yoga, like Manju Joyce. Manju Joyce is never considered the lineage holder, even though his name is Manju Patabi Joyce. And so, this notion of lineage holder has always seemed to me um, arbitrary in that. It requires legitimacy of belief, and and th- you know, like a like a royal line of succession requires legitimacy. You must believe that this person is king, or the or the people will cut off his head. You know, which has often happened that when a, the head of state loses legitimacy, then then um, the whole notion of the state, the whole notion of of the kingdom, starts to fall apart. And so it seems like when we're when we're talking about these things, we're we're so much on a sea of, of changing sand or a sea of prakriti with no substance. And I wanted to know what you th- what you thought about um whether something like lineage really does exist or not. Like parampara? Yeah, like parampara. Like ultimately, I'm the lineage holder, Russell, and anyone who's you know my student is the part of my part of the lineage that goes right back to Sharat and Padavi Joyce and Krishmacharya. But it's you know I, I I think the word isn't even isn't really helpful. Hmm. What does what does lineage mean? I think the term is not helpful to us when you're talking about parampara. It's just you and your relationship to a person who's teaching you. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, there's a problem of of, of lineage, or you call parampara. It's uh, because you know you have the you know the lineage of the Buddha, you have the lineage of great acharya or, or, or teachers, and you have the lineage that are referred to in Hatha uh, Yoga Patipika. You know, thirty five uh, mm-hmm. basically teachers going back to Lord Shiva himself, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, in, in all, uh, you know, 
spiritual teachings who are thorough, a lot of time they ask, okay, who was your teachers uh, and, and what lineage do you belong to? Mm. Uh, because without the lineage and without the proper tradition, it's very easy to, to get lost uh, or just be improvising on the subject. Uh, when you have studied something thoroughly, then at least you may come to know a little bit. So we're all dependent on a teacher or a lineage in the beginning to, to guide us. But, you know, the legitimacy of a lineage, you know, where is the kind of, you could say, substance and, uh, you know, hold and standing within our yoga tradition? Uh, it, 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 it's yoga itself, nothing else. It doesn't belong to a man. It's not a property. And of course, it's sad to see the, the war and conflict happening, you know, um, or, you know, Sharat, so Guruji's family, you know, Shar, Sharmila, Sharat, um, Saraswati, Manju. They're all great teachers, but there's no doubt that Sharat, without any comparison, is the, you know, most suitable person to to hold the space uh, and persevere the teachings of uh, Patabi Joyce, what he was doing at least for the last, you know, 25 years, mm. I would argue. But the lineage, uh, you know, Patabi Joyce was very fascinated by the Shankaracharya tradition. And in the Brahmin community, they all all be- belong to, to a certain lineage going back to Rishi. Um, but all of that has becoming a little bit romanticized and the practicality of it doesn't really matter so much um, anymore. But what is sad in our modern days with that old tradition is projected to a modern system of postural yoga that we are doing and they are claiming it to be a lineage. Mm. Let's just be clear about it. The Krishna Macharya yoga lineage you know, it starts with Krishnamacharya. We don't know anything else about his previous teacher, who they were and where they lived, apart from hearsay. Mm-hmm. We know about BKS and we know about Patabi Joyce, and we know about Desikachar, A.J. Mohan, and, uh, you know, other people. But apart from that, we don't know anything else. So the main focus should be, of course, where is the element of yoga in what we are doing? And that we need to come together to discuss sometime, debate, challenge, and confront each other with what this thing called yoga really is. Because otherwise, we just get caught up in our own navel and, you know, fanciful interpretations. And that you can see happen to both Ayengar, to a certain extent, you know, Desikachar, and also, although Patabi Joyce was more and much a kind of simple kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, conventional Brahmin. So, you know, he was just uh, extending the teachings of him being a follower of Sri Shankaracharya onto the yoga tradition that he was teaching. The first mm-hmm. and foremost, I think he was more of a kind of Advaita Vedanta um, um, philosopher or practitioner rather than, you know, a pure dualistic uh, yoga um, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah whatever (laughs) I don't know how to call it but what is interesting to me is that when 
A tradition undergoes some challenges, confrontation, and difficulties. Then it has a chance to kind of renew itself and to refine itself and to sharpen itself and become better. If mm -hmm. not, you see the opposite, that it kind of just simply get caught it into its own dogma. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that in the Indian tradition, that like with the arrival of Buddhism, Jainism and a kind of non-orthodox school, the whole kind of, uh, you could say, uh, you know, Sanatana tradition or the Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. they had to reinvent themselves and to kind of debate and argue against the criticism of the Buddhist and the Jains. And that made the whole tradition better and clearer. And from that point we see the development of the Shabdarshana, the six philosophies, etc., where Sankhya and Yoga is part of the whole. Mm -hmm. um, and my point is that there is a, a living tradition that you know is part of a culture that it grows up in and is influent, very influenced by that kind of uh, culture and, 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 and history of the time, if you like, and, and conditioning of the time. But yoga is, you know, where is the element of yoga in, in the things that we do? Where is the element of yoga in, in, in and, and ultimately that is life itself. Mm. That's where, where yoga helps us to find release from our pain, our suffering, confusion and delusion. It's Yoga is a release, a cure for a pain we have not yet fully accessed or discovered. And when yoga is best, we kind of, we come into being and we learn to embrace and we learn to tolerate opposite views and different perspectives, but we are willing to kind of meet it, to work with it, understand it, digest it, and try to come up with a articulate idea of how we can fit it into this greater thing called yoga or whatever our standard of yoga is. And I think that is what is missing, uh, unfortunately, sometime in the modern world of self-proclaimed lineage holders. Because, you know, our modern-day yoga lineage from Krishnamacharya it's 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 self-proclaimed it is mm. man-made it is constructed and fabricated according to a time and place and the fanciful ideas of a person running it but for yoga to be true and to be real that is timeless mm -hmm. it is present and it's accessing that very inmost part of our being that doesn't change, that is always there. And whatever our yoga practice may be, it's different according to, you know, um, times and circumstances. But when we learn to meet ourselves uh, in the time and place we are at and adapt yoga to our modern way of life, then we can say yoga is working in our life and we can say we are embracing yoga. Otherwise, we are just kind of living a kind of, dogmatic ideal and that's what I feel is a little sad with this whole kind of modern uh, focus so that you know the Ashtanga yoga lineage you know 
what is that really? To me, that doesn't hold proof. That is not a, a tradition that it's that is solid. Patabi Joyce called his system Ashtanga Yoga because that's basically the the lowest tier of yoga that Patanjali addresses. He also speaks about Kriya Yoga. He speaks about Niroda Yoga, which is a higher state of yoga. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, the eight limbs of yoga is very necessary and crucial for our development of what yoga is. But if it's not adaptable to the our modern life and time and circumstances where we live, it just becomes a, a spiritual fancy. It's it's funny that you mentioned that because I um, when people talk about uh, man made or or self proclaimed or and that being in in contradiction to uh, smriti, I, I think, or maybe it's shruti. Shruti yeah, is a kind shruti. of sp- Mm-hmm. It's kind of scripture coming mm-hmm. from God, you know, like the, the Bible comes from God or that, <laughs> yeah. or that yeah. kings come from God. The Queen Elizabeth is, is anointed by God yeah. for mm-hmm. her for her position. That's all, again, a kind of legitimacy of belief and you know, rationale for the luck that she was born to her father. And when I... I, I always kind of rankles me and I kind of want to get out the guillotine and like, I want to start <laughs> cutting off people's heads, you know, because it's all, it's all man-made and all things are God. So w- when one person is suddenly proclaimed as lineage holder, I think, where's my ax? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but to, to me, there's no, no doubt that, you know, shut up is the kind of, lineage holder of of the the heritage he got from his grandfather that's that's mm. fine and that that's the form and style of the teaching but wh- how is he taking care of the elements of yoga preserved within that tradition how is he learning to take care of the students and teachers who belong to that tradition how does he learn to appreciate different opinions than himself and learn to tolerate diversity rather than wanting to have certain things in a set form and being afraid of change. Right. Uh, you know, that, 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 that I find is sometimes missing. And, and, and you the, know, the like... Responsibility to be self-critical and to analyze what you're yeah. doing and is it work yeah. or not? Yeah. And, and, yeah the and, willingness and who, to do that, to, to learn. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean... I think you really bring that to your yoga practice, though, Alex, that own self-reflective, critical thinking about, I mean, of course, we all have our blind spots from time to time, but, um, you know, you come to things with a very reflective mind, which helps you to, I think, grow and deepen and understand things. There's a natural curiosity there to explore why something is the way it is or how deep you can go into something. And maybe that's a gift and other people sometimes don't have that same gift. They just take things at face value and move on, you know. Well, well, sublate sometimes, you know, to, to, to some, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it can be a blessing, it can be a curse. But to me, <laughs> I, I have a, a deep love and I have a deep longing to kind of sit down with Sharat and have a talk and come on, let's, you know, bring some 
all you know teachers together and let's discuss you know what is really our tradition and what are we standing for what are our values and you know what is the you know proper method and and not proper method instead of just like wrestling something into your own hands and standing up and saying this is mine and and Mm -hmm. i am the you know uh, carekeeper of that and i never question Sharat's supreme uh, authority of, of being like, if you call this uh, the lineage holder. But I believe in like, there must be room for question. There must be room for debates. There must be room for inquiry into this shared human great interest that we have, which is yoga, you know, the embodied beingness of yoga. And if we don't have that, I believe it's so easy to lose track Mm. and we become short-sighted and we just hold up our dogma that we try to justify. And without that, we really don't have much. Yeah, it's sort of that interesting thing of like the vertical sort of uh, path to enlightenment where you're, it's in a way, very selfish and self-focused and it's just you and your practice and asceticism. you're trying to, yeah, asceticism, you know, you're, it's all about you and your spiritual evolution, which I think a lot of us, when we begin the yoga practice, have this, this idea that, oh, I'm going to practice really hard and do all the right things so that I can get enlightened, right? This sort of up and out mentality, but <laughs> the longer you practice, <laughs> <You're>, yeah, <laughs> the more time it takes and you start to look around, hopefully, uh-huh. and you start to go, how can I make the world a little bit better? You know, as David Swenson likes to say, you know, the yogi leaves the the place, leaves a place better, uh, better than it was when he arrived or yeah. when she arrived, you yeah. know, the the idea of how can we leave things a little bit better and and that sort yeah. of horizontal uh, yeah. enlightenment. Inspired by that comment by David Swenson, actually, I, I tell my back in the ring members, you know, yoga is really about when you come into a room, make that room a better place than when you right. first came in, because that's what it's about. And we as embodied being with all our fallacies, as you said, black spots and confusion and delusion, how can we bring about clarity with this human body-mind organism and find steadiness? Because that's what yoga, that's the proof of yoga. It's not how great asanas you do, but it's the steadiness of mind and the security and comfort of steadiness from within that brings clarity in your life and brings luminosity to, to whatever you engage in. And to me, the, the interesting thing about yoga is, of course, yoga in action of of embodying yoga in in the very life that we do and mm-hmm. that's why raising children is the seven series and <laughs> i love being part of that yeah you're fully in it again <laughs> i i want to say that the part of the benefit for us of having this podcast is is being able to meet old friends but ask um deeper, more interesting, maybe more introspective questions than we would if we were just hanging out, um, you know, in front of the shala and having the time to really explore people's beliefs and people's understandings and and hearing this um, 
hearing these deeper answers and having that time. And I, I just want to say I really appreciate that you would make that time for us and explore explore these notions, which I think really do deserve, you know, longer conversations and can than can be had on social media. But first of all, I want to say, you know, I'm so grateful that you guys reach out and that you want to have this uh, conversation because there's a part of me also that feel a little sad. You know, part of me, I feel I left lost some of my family with kind of posting some of the letters I did to write this open criticism that mm -hmm. uh, some people felt was wrong. And, and, and some, you know, in one, I have this ambiguity within me that, you know, yes, on one level it was, but on another level for me, it was necessary to, to do it because I believe that's what my, my standards are. But um, I, I miss, you know, um, all the good friends that I met in, in Mysore, I miss, you know, practicing in the shala. I, I miss that kind of beautiful lifestyle of of of, of hanging out and, and just uh, exploring yoga together uh, mm -hmm. as a group. Uh, but I also, you know, time changes, and then we have to bring that whatever small gems of yoga we we learn. We have to share it uh, within our community and um, you know do our best to embody it with it with the lives we live and i feel just so infinitely grateful for yoga and everything that yoga has given me because i, I came from a very you know poor background and, and a poor education and everything but thanks to yoga and sanskrit i was able to do something with my life and and, and change kind of reckless life of, of drugs and crime into a more kind of noble state of mind and that could have never happened uh, without yoga uh, i believe so that's why you know people like you or friends from long time back it's it's very very enjoyable and precious to reconnect with you and yeah mm. can you tell us about the work that you're doing with other troubled youth uh, yeah, it, it's well. I, I I kind of started this charity organization called Back in the Ring, which is basically working with former drug addicts and trying to make them, yeah, get back to life and be productive and find meaning. And also former inmates in prison uh, who you know have gone a little bit astray. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm also uh, been teaching in a lot of prisons around Norway, but but now due to COVID, it's been been down for a few for a couple of months. But but also, uh, yeah, there's much to say about back in the ring, and <laughs> that's a, maybe I we'll leave so that for part two. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I, we have, I have so much to talk about, and you know, you do tired from the, the, another day's work, you know, work. Yeah. But but. Um, it, uh, Talking to you was so enjoyable, and I ask you, please, let's do another proper discussion when I'm a little bit less yes, we'll tired, a little more focused, and we can focus on <laughs> yeah. the real thing that really matters. Oh, he died. <laughs> well, I guess that's it. That's the end of the interview. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon.
Hard wind and the soil